to America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka with Professor Akil Amar, and today we have the great privilege of welcoming to the podcast Bob Woodward. Bob is perhaps the greatest reporter of all time. He's an associate editor of the Washington Post, where he's been since 1971. He's a member of the Yale College class of 1965, and in gratitude to the university for the past several springs, he's taught a highly sought-after limited enrollment seminar on journalism, which Akhil and I have the privilege of sitting in on this semester. After Yale, he spent five years in the U.S. Navy and was discharged as a lieutenant. Uh, soon after this, he began his reporting career, and at the Washington Post, he's shared in two Pulitzer Prizes, first in 1973 for the coverage of the Watergate scandal with Carl Bernstein, and second in 2003 as the lead reporter uh, for the coverage of the September 11th attacks. He's authored or co-authored 19 books, and all of them have been nonfiction bestsellers. 14 of them have been number one national bestsellers. His most recent book, Fear, was published uh, in 2020 and is considered, as one critic observed, an October surprise that President Trump foisted upon himself. Bob Schieffer of CBS News has said, quote, Woodward has established himself as the best reporter of our time. He may be the best reporter of all time, unquote. Uh, Gene Roberts, former managing editor of the New York Times, called the Woodward-Bernstein-Watergate coverage quote, maybe the single greatest reporting effort of all time, unquote. Enlisting the all-time 100 best nonfiction books, Time Magazine listed their classic book on the coverage, All the President's Men, in their list of the 100 best nonfiction books ever written, calling it, quote, perhaps the most influential piece of journalism in history, unquote. So it's a great pleasure to welcome to America's Constitution, Bob Woodward. It, Bob, it's uh, such an honor to, to have you. Um, for our audience, uh, sh should know that uh, that my uh, last book, uh, not to be confused with the one coming out this May, but my last book is actually dedicated to Bob Woodward. And in that book, I tell the story about um, how, in recent years, I've come to understand um, my life in a different way. Uh, that. What changed my life was when, on my 18th birthday, I arrived at Yale College, sight unseen. Um, and I, I only, in recent years, have understood why I got into Yale College. And I got into Yale College basically because I was um, a troublemaking journalist uh, in high school. And I was a troublemaking journalist in high school who took on the administration, my principal, the school board, um, doing investigative expose pieces, and, and as you age, you become sometimes a little bit more self-aware. You say, oh, that's why I did that. Oh, that's what that was all about. And I come to realize that, that um, I was all those things in high school because, of course, I was so influenced by the extraordinary model of, of Bob Woodward. And that's what got me into Yale College, uh, which changed my life. Um, so, um, and that's one of the many reasons I dedicated this book to Bob because um, he didn't know it at the time. You know, I di hadn't met him yet, but but thanks to Bob Woodward, I'm the person who. And, and so own. now you're 
Uh, Akil, now you're a troublemaking law professor. Exactly so. And you, and I sit in on Bob's class. He teaches a class in Yale College uh, uh, yearly. And, and I've sat in, I think now, maybe four times. Uh, and, and Bob encourages all his students, and I consider myself one of Bob's students, to be a troublemaker. And Bob continues himself to be a troublemaker, but the kind of trouble he makes is good trouble. Um, so actually, Bob, let's, let's start with that. You've covered uh, almost every president in your adult lifetime, um, and the trouble that you've made uh, was uh, of historic significance for at least two presidents. You, as much as any single person probably in the world, um, br- br- helped bring down, brought down Richard Nixon, and then... With two more recent books, uh, Fear and Rage, you did it again for Donald Trump, which is epic. So I guess I wanted to start by inviting you to, to tell us about um, your coverage um, year after year, book after book, of modern American presidents. What have you learned? Um, what should the rest of us uh, under, know about American presidents? Because every four years we got to pick one. And, and what should we be thinking about when we pick our presidents? Uh, That's a really great question. And I think the starting point, uh, what I've extracted from writing about the nine presidents is the incredible concentration of power in the presidency. It's, as as you both know, rooted in the Constitution, uh, Article 2, the the president of the United States is the executive branch. And uh, in the modern era, with so much news coverage, the, the speed and uh, impatience of getting to things, a president, and this is so well demonstrated by Trump, can dominate not just the political world, but the, uh, the country in a way uh, I've done a lot of work on various wars, going back to the first Gulf War uh, in 1991, uh, George W. Bush's wars, how Obama handled uh, his wars, and uh, you realize that presidents have the, really practically the sole power to start a war. I think wars are the most defining events for any country, certainly have been ours. And so if people are going to think about, gee, who should be president, it should be you're you're hiring a commander-in-chief who can literally deploy the force as he or she sees fit, And, uh, yes, the Congress could stop money, but for practical purposes, again, once a president is committed U.S. troops in the field, uh, it would be difficult to impossible for Congress to withdraw the funds to pay, equip, and provide ammunition and all of the things that troops in the field need. So... uh, that's that's the starting point to understand the the modern presidency and should be 
I, I think in the, uh, you know, we define ourselves as a nation by who we go to war with. So um, I can't believe that uh, um, this is a kind of constitutional law podcast for con law nerds. And so I just, I just love it that you're actually quoting Article 2 of the Constitution in your answer. And you've outed yourself as a unitary executive of, of a certain sort. And, and welcome to the club because Andy and, and I are, are in that camp as well. In, by the way, in, his, <clears throat> in Bob's latest book, uh, Fear, he, uh, he goes into this. He, he talks about how the president can fire anyone and so forth, and he does address various constitutional issues. Um, and uh, um, we've mentioned you, we've, we've um, uh, invoked your name uh, in, in vain <laughs> um, in earlier episodes, and I want to make sure that I've gotten you right for our audience, because here's what I've told them, that uh, one of the things I learned from you um, uh, talking about um, the awesome powers of the presidency um, is that um, sometimes you don't even know what the, that the next issue may be, the next war may be, and so it's a mistake to just focus on a president's, presidential candidate's platform because, uh, and w- the way I think I may have put it to the audience, I can't remember if I said it this way, is that the presidency is... A, a box of chocolates in, in a way because you, you don't know what the issues are that are going to come up over the next four years. So you have to pay a lot of attention, not just to the platform, but to character and, and competence and the human being that you're picking because you don't even know what the issues may be over the next four right. years. But you do know that the president is going to play a central role. Presidents, for instance, don't manage the economy exclusively, but they have an immense impact on the conditions uh, under which the economy, capitalism, the Federal Reserve, uh, Congress's spending policies, and the the central role of the president in that uh, is uh, absolutely great. The other thing, because I'm going to take your question seriously about what should be extracted from uh, the experience of trying to not just write about, but understand, ask that question, you know, what's really driving these people? I remember, I think it was 20 years ago, I was at a reception and then Justice Scalia uh, was at the reception and uh, He came up to me and he said, Woodward, how come you always write about presidents? And I said, "Uh, well, I I am recently because that's where the power is. And he, in Scalia's ungentle way, said, wrong, wrong, wrong. What's Article One of the Constitution? And I said, the legislature, and he said, see, see, and I said, yes, that's the way it's written in the Constitution, and the legislature has immense power, but we are now in a practical world, and it is the primacy of the presidents, and I gave some examples, particularly uh, in wars, and uh, he didn't seem uh, to agree, 
And I said, well, sometime I wanted to do another book. I'd done a book, The Brethren, with Scott Armstrong in 1979, another book on the Supreme Court, and I'd like to give you a call. And he said, uh, uh, don't wait by your phone waiting for me to return the call. <laughs> you know, uh, I think... He, you know, he might have been right uh, in the, if one goes back to the original uh, republic, because, um, you know, Congress did have a certain degree of primacy in the early republic, notwithstanding Washington. Um, the model, though, I think that the, that the founders had in mind was in Rome, you know, where the, where the Senate, you know, would rule, but when there was a, an existential problem, they would name a dictator and give him all sorts of powers that um, it would allow him to, to carry them through. And I think when you look back at, at the history of the presidency, you see presidential power expanding largely in, in three, or, uh, three situations. Um, Lincoln, um, Wilson, and right. Roosevelt. Yep. And That's now in, true. Now, of course, in the case of Roosevelt, you know, he took office not during a war, but during a crisis, during the Depression. And one could argue that his powers expanded greatly before World War II. And so I think that when Trump described himself as a wartime president, in a way, he was, he was right in the sense that he was addressing the fact that, that there was a major crisis that required the president to rise to the occasion. Now, whether or not he actually did rise to the occasion is another matter. But um, so I think that what we're talking about here is trying to see in a president someone who's capable of rising to the occasion. And if you look at the various presidents that you have interviewed and gotten to know and written about, which presidents would you say impressed you the most with their ability to rise to the occasion when they were presented with unexpected situations? Uh, important question. Uh, I am, in the end, uh, turned out to be uh, very appreciative of Gerald Ford, who succeeded Nixon. And of course, when he pardoned Nixon, there was a lot of scorn heaped on Ford, including by me and my partner, Carl Bernstein. And then, again, this luxury of time to go dig into things. 20 years later, I did this series of interviews with Ford revisiting the question, and uh, I remember, I think it was about, it was seven interviews, and uh, the last one was at his home in Rancho Mirage, California. We're sitting there in his little office, and we turned to the pardon, and uh, and he, he said, and uh, in the most direct way, said, people don't understand why I pardon Richard Nixon. It was not for Nixon, it was not for his family, but it was for the country. And then he, in this wonderful kind of monologue, he said, let me tell you the world I was living in as soon as I became president and Nixon resigned. And he said, everything, all the questions to me, or virtually all of them, were about Nixon. 
It, what's going to happen to him? Is he going to be indicted? Is he going to be tried? What's he doing out there in San Clemente? And Ford said uh, quite, I mean, it, it, it was gripping to listen to this. He said, so I was crippled almost as president by the Nixon shadow. I had to say and think, like a president, and a president has to say what's in the national interest, not what's in my specific political interest. And said, I looked out and we had to get Nixon off the front page. We had to move on. And so I, I was 30 days into the Ford presidency. He surprised <clears throat> the world really by going on television and saying, I'm giving Nixon a full pardon for Watergate. And he said, I knew I was going to pay a political price, but I, my job was assessing the national interest in acting on that national interest is, and he said quite, as only I could see it, my lawyers and my staff and you know, people resigned. They were quite upset about him. But I had a particular vantage point. And I then uh, wrote about this, and Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of John F. Kennedy, uh, called me up and said they were going to give the Profiles and Courage Award to Gerald Ford for pardoning Nixon. I did not go to the ceremony at the Kennedy Library, but watched it. And it was fascinating to see Ford there, in a way, vindicated in his explanation and uh, the sense he had done what was in the national interest, not his political interest. So as you, you look at that, you have to admire it and that rather courageous it was a profile in courage in my view and i think increasingly people have come to accept that what ford did was necessary and very gutsy uh, that's a perfect segue bob because in earlier editions of this episodes of this podcast we actually talked about the 25th amendment um which enables a president, when there's a vice presidential vacancy, to name a new vice president subject to congressional confirmation. Ford, of course, is the um, uh, first um, uh, vice president to be named under the 25th Amendment. Uh, and in that confirmation hearing, he was actually asked whether... Uh, um, he would ever pardon Nixon. I think the backdrop was, um, the, the, the premise of the question was, in exchange for um, becoming president, if Nixon kind of was going to step down and, um, and basically say, I'll step down, but if you promise to pardon me. Um, um, but, but that was the implicit premise of the question. But I think the, the question <clears throat> was actually just worded, you know, would you ever pardon Nixon? And I think Ford said something, and this was nationally televised. It was a, it was the, uh, a, a, a very prominent confirmation process, saying something like, I don't think the American pe public or the American people would stand for that. And then 30 days into the presidency, he does it, and all sorts of people, 
myself included, I was in high school, had all sorts of assumptions about why he had done that. And I think you at the time and Carl Bernstein at the time had all sorts of assumptions. I'd love it if you could share with our audience um, what your and Carl Bernstein's reactions were at that time, because you've shared, just told us, you changed your mind about this as you've come back and done more reporting and looked at it. So what did you think about that in the moment, you and Carl Bernstein? And and I think you also did some um, intermediate reporting about um, Al Haig and other folks approaching Gerald Ford. So you told us now what your new view is, but what were your earlier views ab- about yeah, this issue? Sunday morning that Ford... Uh, announced the pardon of Nixon. He went on television early, and I was asleep, and uh, Carl Bernstein called me up and said, have you heard? And I said, you know, I haven't heard a thing. I've been asleep. And then he, in Carl's particularly direct and succinct way, said the uh, son of a bitch pardoned the son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Or the son of a bitch had pardoned the son of a bitch uh, Nixon, and uh, we thought that there was a deal, and our reporting later showed that Haig, who was Nixon's chief of staff, came and offered a deal, and this is what years later I went through Ford with, and he said, yes, Haig offered a deal, but I rejected the deal because I pardoned Nixon didn't mean I was doing it for that reason. And then Ford quite astutely said, look, I knew when Haig came to me and Ford's vice president that Nixon was finished. The final smoking gun tape came out. There was so much on the tape. The Republicans had turned again against Nixon. And so at this point, Ford who had spent all these all this time in the House of Representatives, uh, minority leader, Republican leader, wanted to become Speaker of the House. Uh, He had enough political insight to realize that uh, Nixon was finished, that you didn't need a deal to become president. And so he said there was no deal. I'm not going to make a deal. Can't do that. But... uh, so his, his explanation uh, has a, a lot of merit, in my opinion. And do you want to hear one other anecdote? Uh, of course. Always. Uh, relates to this, because um, what, what happened after Nixon resigned, Carl Bernstein and I undertook our second book, After All the President's Men, which was the final days about Nixon's last year in office. And uh, we, it was a wonderful time to do reporting because there were all these people who'd been, uh, were now out of the Nixon White House at home, alone, uh, not sure where their careers or lives were going, so we were able to interview them extensively. And I remember uh, we called Barry Goldwater, who the Republican conservative from Arizona, thought by many to be the conscience of the Republican Party, called him up and said, we'd like to talk to you 
about Nixon. And he said, okay, come on over to my house in a couple of nights. It was at some apartment off Mass Avenue in a high rise. I remember Carl and I went there and uh, Goldwater uh, said, I have a diary that I dictated at the end of each day and I have an aide transcribe it. And uh, the entry for, he said, let me read you the entry for August 7th, 1974. This is the smoking gun tape had come out. It was clear that Nixon was going to be impeached, charged in the House. And so Nixon invited the Republican leader in the House, John Rhodes, the Republican leader in the Senate, Hugh Scott, and Goldwater to come to the Oval Office. And uh, Nixon had no aides there. And uh, Nixon uh, said, so what's going to happen? I know I'm going to be impeached in the House. What's going to happen in the Senate? And he offered some speculation that he really didn't have enough. You need would need, as you know, 34 votes for acquittal to stay in office. And uh, so Nixon asked these three legislators that you know the key to the Republican Party. Uh, and Hugh Scott said, uh, Mr. President, we've asked Barry to be our spokesman. And so Goldwater said, Mr. President. Uh, I have polled the uh, people in the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, and Goldwater was a very good vote counter, said, uh, Mr. President, uh, in the Senate trial, you have only five votes. And, you know, that was... That pretty much spoke the end, but what then Goldwater said, according to his diary later confirmed to us by Hugh Scott and John Rhodes, but Goldwater said, Mr. President, and one of those five is not mine. (laughs) (laughs) And if you want to slip the knife in more effectively, I don't think uh, you could. And uh, the next night, Nixon went on television and announced he was resigning. It was the Republican Party, and it was the the conscience of Goldwater, the sense of criminality and abuse of power, and, and uh, the presidency of Nixon that really forced that. And so I, I always thought uh, and always encouraged everyone that I get to know in government, keep a diary. Let, <laughs> let me know. Because a, a diary has, I mean, you both know, it, uh, you're both evidence people, a diary contemporaneous, this is what happened, or a contemporaneous memo or notes that somebody wrote out. Or the, you know, there's never perfect evidence, but that's about as close as you can get. And I remember Carl and I leaving. I mean, first when we went up to Goldwater's, he said, would you like a drink? And, of course, he got the whiskey out. 
And uh, after Goldwater reading this diary, Carl and I just went out. I just, you know, we're saying, what an amazing moment in history. What an, an amazing uh, testimony to the power of the legislature and the power, if you will, of conscience. So and the power of the First Amendment, I think we have to say. I mean, Watergate, you know, certainly was a vindication of the First Amendment, I would say. And, and, and connecting those two uh, points, Andy's point about the First Amendment and, and your point about um, uh, uh, diaries, I've never asked you this, but actually, Bob, do you have a diary? And, and what will happen to it um, eventually um, if you do have a diary? Okay, that's a good uh, and fair question. I don't keep a diary, but what I do keep is what I did each day, and the important part of the diary is who I talk to. And uh, uh, with people's permission, I record those interviews, and so that will be available sometime uh, down the road. At, but uh, wow! It wow! Be far down the road when everyone's dead, including me. Um, an amazing! I, I did not know that. So, so maybe the National Archives or, or something like that will will one day um, have that collection. Well, what I, for one of the books I did on Clinton, I had said I would give it to Yale. <laughs> wow! I, I think that. Um, you know, that will be willed to my wife, Elsa, uh, my daughters, uh, Kelly and uh, Diana, and then they can figure out what to do. Uh, but I will urge them not to burn it. <laughs> um, to, or to erase 18 and a half minutes of any part of it. Yeah, yeah. That will, hopefully no well, it's 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 kind of it's interesting the the notion of collection of archives. Um, at Yale, they have the Kissinger archives among many collections. What a place! <laughs> Indeed, and um, actually, our our podcast is sponsored by the Everest Scholar Program. And one of the things we do in these programs is, um, yeah, as we study a subject, we explore you know additional resources. So, for example, when we had a course on world order. Um, we went and saw the Kissinger papers at Yale. So um, one of the things that, w that I noticed about it was that it's actually divided. So the National Archives has part of the Kissinger papers and, some, and Yale has the rest. And it's extremely inconvenient when that happens, when, when collections are divided um, in, yeah, in that manner. Yeah, not the people now, are they? Really, or not all of not the really interesting parts. Yeah, you'd be surprised where something interesting can be found. But yes, I mean, I guess you wouldn't be surprised. But, uh, um, but yes. So just like to back up for a second in terms of your, uh, the story you told about uh, Gerald Ford and his, uh, how your opinion has, has changed over the years. It sounded to me that your opinion now uh, of Ford is based on not so much the substance of the pardon, but rather the character that it revealed. Um, that yeah. The, that he put That's country a, over over himself, over his, his re-election. Yeah, and, um, you know, character is is so important, but also, you know, this is, I mean, you, you uh, Andy, as a physician, Akil, 
as a law professor, uh, you always have to ask yourself, what is the job you have? And uh, apply it to uh, if, as best you can. And I think sometimes the job, it's not really always clear what the job is. Now, happily in journalism and book writing, it's clear what the job is to figure out what really happened. And we've done the Ford example. Let me, if I can bore you with another Please. story that sticks in my head, and it it's uh, thematic and specific, but thematically it is that when you write these books, uh, I want to cover the White House. I want to cover uh, the, the staff, the cabinet officers, but also you want to dig into the, the people who are out there in the CIA, State Department, or Pentagon, Treasury, and figure out the roles of the individuals. And sometimes those people understand their job better than the president's. And uh, I, one example, and this is this also connects to the idea of which Akihel and I have talked about, you know, always be available, always go see people. Uh, Ray Odierno, a general, some oh, 10 years ago plus, uh, was chief of staff of the Army. And uh, he would uh, ask me to come talk to the new, you know, he's four-star general, and each year they would pick about 100, 110 new one-star generals. So they're going from colonel to general. People have been in the Army 20, 30 years. Uh, but so he'd say, why don't you come and, uh, talk to them about the media. And so I, you know, thought, okay, you know, I know Odierno. I, I think understanding the Pentagon sec secretaries of defense, I've, I've known and reported on, I was telling somebody the other day, I think 16 secretaries of defense going back to Bob McNamara and, uh, Generals, chiefs, anyway, Odierno, I'd go and I'd talk about the media and just do that. And then the first time Odierno got up, really a big bear of a man, commanding presence, somebody who had seen combat. And so he kind of walks down the aisle, and I'm sitting in the back, all these generals are there. He says, all right, generals, you know, kind of almost. He's not mocking them, but he's reminding them that they're new to the generalship, and he has a lot of experience. And so he said, uh, he, he said, I have a question. What's the job of the Army? And almost every hand went up, and he calls on one. And one of the new generals says, Chief, uh, the job of the Army is to recruit, equip, and train the soldiers.
volunteers to fight and win wars. And almost everyone nods, oh dear, good, great. And then he said, what's the other job of the Army? And they really, they all look around, other job of the Army? What do you mean? Is there something we're supposed to do that they didn't tell us about? <laughs> it was quite, you know, mm-hmm. true bewilderment. And he said, generals, the second job of the Army, and it may be the first job of the Army, is to prevent war. And you just saw understanding kind of come to the faces of these new generals, because they kind of knew it, but it wasn't, you know, something they'd, they'd quite thought about. And, of course, Odier knows right. That's the job of the Army. It's called the Defense Department, not the War Department. And uh, I was, uh, it just struck me so much that only when you go, uh, you love to, I mean, uh, you and Akil sit in on my journalism class. Uh, and With it, great delight. Well, but it's, you know, you both uh, offer insights uh, and uh, that the students aren't going to get uh, from me. But I love to go to the classes and the opportunity like, Odierno presented. There are people in other, including the CIA. I've been invited out to the CIA to speak. uh, And you then can kind of, uh, you gain an opportunity to see these people at work. And uh, there's nothing more powerful than to see people in a learning environment particularly people who seem to be uh, very powerful, CIA people or one-star generals or go into the State Department. or uh, And so the opportunity, you would think, well, no, I don't want to spend time figuring out how these people learn. And actually how they learn is one of the best ways to figure out who they are and what the values are that they have and how they see their job. Um, since you um, mentioned your interest in, in talking to all sorts of different kinds of folks, uh, uh, presidents and CIA folks and, and uh, lower-level staffers and, and uh, heads of, of, of the military, um, um, you briefly alluded to your um, extraordinary book um, with uh, Scott Armstrong, The Brethren, and your conversation with Scalia. I should just share with our audience that in the acknowledgments of, of this uh, book, The Constitution Today, um, which is dedicated to you, I, I told the story of how I thought, with retrospect, uh, in retrospect, you're the person who actually, whose role model got me into Yale College, uh, got me into trouble, and then got me into Yale College. Um, um, I also then tell the story of how in my senior year of Yale College, uh, back home for Christmas, I got a Christmas gift from my then-girlfriend, uh, which was a copy of the, 
the Brethren, and I read it, and I reread it, and I reread it over Christmas break, and uh, and a week later, I submitted my law school application. Um, so I, um, the world has you to blame for that as well. Um, uh, my going to law school, um, but would you be willing to talk a little bit about that project? Um, because that was, you know, another interesting set of people that you tried to get to know and 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 chronicle for for your audience. Yeah, what uh, what happened in the second Nixon book, The Final Days, we had some people tell Scott Armstrong and myself about uh, the Nixon tapes case, which was the unanimous 8-0 ruling by the Supreme Court that Nixon had to turn over his tapes. And in the chronology of this, Uh, That was very important. I think it was only about two or three weeks before Nixon resigned because uh, the order from the court unanimously, the decision, okay, he's going to have to turn over his tapes, gave Nixon no wiggle room on the best evidence. And uh, so uh, we thought, uh, gee, Let's find out what goes on in the Supreme Court. And there was a uh, moment uh, I kept pushing Justice Potter Stewart, who'd gone to Yale Law School, who uh, had been the editor of the Yale Daily News, and actually had given a speech about journalism and the work Carl Bernstein and I'd done on the Nixon case. So I started a gentle pressure campaign on Stewart. Uh, I'd call him or I would see him at receptions. He was a very social being. said, I really want to talk about the Nixon tapes case. want to see you. And so uh, to my surprise, one night I saw him at a reception at Catherine Graham's, uh, the publisher of the Post. And I said, I, uh, and I, pushed again, and he said, okay, uh, come by my house tomorrow night. So I went to his house, and he, I, 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 if you tortured me at that point, this is 1977, I think, and asked me to name the justices of the Supreme Court, then I don't think I could. Hmm. I knew so little about the Supreme Court. But so I just... Asked or you know, what's it like? What goes on? What are the power relationships among the justices? And he outlined the brethren. And uh, I wrote a two-page memo, showed it to Scott Armstrong and said, should we spend a couple of months on this and write about it or should we do a book? And Scott said, oh, this is a, this is a book. And so we took leaves from the Washington Post and went to work, and uh, it was a it was the post Watergate period, and there was a, a sense. I remember calling Justice Powell once, just one morning, because uh, we wanted to talk to the justices and the clerks, uh, and called Justice Powell and. Uh, said uh, doing and I, I didn't know him I had a relative who knew him in Richmond Virginia uh, and I'd never talked to Powell and 
I said, we're going to do this book on decision-making. We want to focus on the court. I'd like to talk to you. He said, oh, good. I, I said, when can we talk? And he said, how about now? And I was still in my pajamas then, I think. And I said, well, I'll be there in a half hour. And I went to see him. And it was uh, such a, I mean, he was open about it up to a point, mm-hmm. but he would he would say uh, things like, uh, "Well, as a as a citizen, I would decide this case this way, but as a justice who has to follow the law and the precedents, I would decide it the other way." And he cited the abortion cases as an example, and. Uh, so I just, how do you make your decisions? And he said, oh, well, this is the way I do it. I Particularly if I get a case where it's assigned to me to write the majority, I will take one of my clerks and say, this is what you're working on. Start doing research, write a draft. And then I'll take another clerk and say, okay, this is how I'm coming out in this case, but I want you to take the contrary point of view, do the research, write memo to me about the best argument on the other side. And he said, then I will, in my opinions, almost always flat out directly address the case for the other side openly just say, you know, I'm deciding this way, but, oh, you know, there's the best parts of the argument on the other side are here. And I thought, wow, that's something. And, uh, of course, we put it in the book. We found some examples of that. And all of a sudden, the law journals, a couple of them started saying, oh, you know, this is the way Powell makes decisions. But the lawyers in the law journal people never got to it by looking at his opinions. You needed somebody inside, in this case it was the justice himself, saying, this is how I write an opinion. And, of course, there were a couple of times where he changed his mind, where he realized, oh, no, it should be the other way. I think they were not cases where he was the author of the majority, but he would go through that process. And so Scott Armstrong and I were able to interview 140 clerks, uh, a number of the justices, including Powell, said to his clerks, oh yeah, talk to him, you know what the, you know where the line is, and of course everyone places the line at a different point. So we were able to get all kinds of internal documents and accounts of exactly how cases are decided. And I think, and Akil particularly, you could correct me on this, but I think there have been books on the Supreme Court, lots of them, but they've never really had the step-by-step, the arguments, the relationship among the justices, the conference, and the outcome to the extent that the brethren had. Is that correct? 
um, the, the very few uh, uh, that I would say are the best tried to follow the template of the brethren, um, Ed Lazarus's closed chambers. He himself was a clerk and he got into some trouble because people said he, he was talking out of school. Uh, of course, Jeff Tubin's uh, uh, books and um, Marsha Coyle's on the Robert Court and Joan Biskupik's uh, 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 on um, some of the justices. I would say those are the, the uh, I may be overlooking one or two others, but those are the, the creme de la creme. And uh, for every one of them, it's very obvious, at least to me, that uh, the Brethren was a template. Um, but, but I'm not sure anyone ever came close to uh, uh, getting 140-plus clerks to, to open up. Would you say that the courts tightened up uh, since then? I mean, Yes. Yeah, and there have been... Uh, there have been law journal articles about what was in some of the papers of the justices, and and like Powell uh, denied to his brethren, the other justices, that he talked to me. And, of course, he had and did additional interviews. And uh, it said there was a lot of tension in the court then. And uh, the interesting part really was and it's the conclusion of the book that the center was in control that mm-hmm. the left of, of douglas and marshall brennan really didn't control on the right uh, the justices uh, you know didn't really control it was the center of stewart and powell and white to a certain extent and to in a, a way that never was made sense to me that they looked at Rehnquist as a member of that center block. And I remember, I don't have the book in my hand because I'm actually in my office and the, the book is back home. I'm getting my COVID shot today. Um, so I have to come into the office, but, but either the end of the book or I think the end of um, either the end of the section, but I think it was the end of the book. The last sentence was the center um, held or the center was holding or something like that. I think that was actually um, a very powerful sentence, powerfully placed, um, maybe the end of the book. Um, yes, um, exactly. And I'm going to actually later ask you about the last sentence of um, the first Trump book, um, because that's an amazing sentence, and I want you to share it with the audience. But maybe we'll do that at the at the uh, very end. I want to ask one more th- question about the Brethren, and then Andy was sure. going to ask some questions to you about the journalism more generally and the Washington post and editors versus reporters and all that stuff. But, but just one other thing on the brethren that I think our audience might find interesting and about how you work in general. Um, I pretty much deduced from reading the book that one person who didn't talk to you is um, chief justice Berger. And I thought that that was so you never actually came out and said, here are the people that, that, talked and hear the people that didn't but it seemed to me that Berger didn't because he didn't come off particularly well and uh and and partly I suspected he didn't come off particularly well as he didn't give you his side of the story and it's hard for you and Scott Armstrong to to write his side of the story if he's not sharing with you true but uh lots of his clerks and you know he had he had colleagues uh who were justices that he was close to who uh we got his version, but, uh, you know, he was a very uh, arrogant person and uh, did not, uh, you know, I, and, and this is not 
wanted, I mean, the, this was justices who were close to him, and one of his biggest critics, as you know, was Harry Blackman. And, uh, and, and that story, Blackman was Berger's best man, and they were the Minnesota twins, um, is told in a particularly poignant way in Linda Greenhouse's book, um, uh, Becoming Justice Blackman. I think I actually reviewed it for a, uh, a newspaper called the Washington Post way back when, when it, when it, and it came out. Um, um, but Berger uh, um, and, and Blackman did become estranged, even though when Blackman had joined the court, they were they were best of the best of of friends. I Greenhouse's book persuaded me that yes, there was arrogance there, but there was also a shyness that Berger had, and he he wasn't actually a rocket scientist, and so he was a, a he hid a little bit behind uh, the the robes and 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 the smoke and the mirrors, the great and powerful Oz. Some of those were uh, d- defense mechanisms, um, uh, and I came to have a little bit more sympathy for. Um, uh, Berger after reading uh, Greenhouse's book, but my, the big point that I, I was that I've told some of my students about you is um, uh, my line is everyone talks to Bob Woodward because everyone talks to Bob Woodward, and at the end of the day, um, it's a mistake not to talk to Bob Woodward if the other people in the room are giving their versions of the story because you're fair to everyone, but it, it's it's hard for you to completely see the world through someone's eyes if that person doesn't sit down with you, um, but if Smart people realize that, and they realize, oh, well, there were seven people in the room, and Bob Woodward has talked to persons one, two, three, four, five, and six, and if I don't talk, I'm the only one whose story kind of won't fully be represented in in Woodward's account. I should talk to Bob Woodward because everyone else is talking to Bob Woodward, and if everyone thinks that way, then, and this is my line that I tell my students, everyone talks to Bob Woodward because everyone talks to Bob Woodward. But, uh, you know, as you pointed out in the case of Berger, he didn't, uh, you know, we tried. I know, uh, I know. And uh, he just wouldn't do it. And he was quite upset about the book and he tried to refute it. But uh, we had so much documentation. We had memos, uh, you know, uh, Justice Brennan had his clerk do secret histories of the cases uh, based on the internal debate and the conferences and the back and forth. And so in, in a way it couldn't be refuted. Um, and as people said, the book handed Warren Berger his reputation and I think his reputation lives on, but I, I agree with you. You can have more sympathy for it. And we try to present, uh, you know, some of that through the eyes of other justices. Uh, But he, uh, the breakdown, which Linda Greenhouse wrote about between Berger and Blackman was defining, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. And uh, when the Brethren came out, I think Linda Greenhouse was one of the people who was highly critical of it. And then uh, in her book, uh, about Blackman, uh, she did write, she said, it turns out that the brethren, brethren is substantially accurate, I think was her line. High uh, praise. From, from, from the competition, from, you know, the, 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 the New York Times talking about the, 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 the stars like, of the Wash Poe. 
you know, and uh, other people didn't like it. I mean, the legal establishment basically took two views, uh, and one was we already know this uh, on one hand, and then there were a whole group of people whose position was we don't want to know this. We don't need to know it. But it actually, uh, you know, can be said now, it, it, it showed the strength of the court, they, that they could uh, withstand a, an internal, uh, really exhaustive, I mean, the, the whole Nixon tapes case, the abortion case cases, the death penalty cases, lots of other cases really had um, who struck John, who did what, uh, and uh, it was it was not always pretty, but as people pointed out at the time and have since, it um, it actually uh, showed some pettiness, but it it showed some strength, and that the uh, the court held, and the court uh, there was no I mean, there was one case of some lobbyist trying to talk to one of the justices or. Something like that. Tommy the Cork, no, Tommy the Cork, and brethren, and Brennan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And but there was no corruption. There was no uh, somebody uh, buying votes or having undue influence. The the process of you know, cert picking the cases they're going to hear, having oral argument, having conferences, assigning majority opinions, uh, minority, you know, dissents, and then going through, you know, it's not an accident that it takes them months, if not a year, or sometimes more, to decide important cases, and it's because they adhere to that process, which, again, uh, you know, if you go back to the uh, General Odierno example, if he says the job of the Pentagon of the military is to prevent war, I think you can argue that the Supreme Court's motto is to prevent injustice. Mm. And uh, I think a case can be made uh, that they've done a pretty good job, uh, certainly imperfect like any other institution, but on the really big issue of race relations and desegregation, uh, what the court has done on that collectively is uh, one of its strengths. Would you agree? Well, I think that it's a mixed history. I mean, you know, the court has a long history, and Dred Scott and Plessy are part of that history, notoriously, Slaughterhouse cases, Lochner, you know, lots of lots of bad, you know, and maybe Shelby County deserves to be in that pantheon of disgrace. But uh, but on the other hand, you know, as you say, you know, the, uh, you know, the arc of, of history may be bending towards justice. But I think that the... Uh, you know, one of the functions of the brethren, you know, peop- to the degree that the Supreme Court is shrouded in mystery, um, people can make blanket statements like it's all politics or, you know, they, or, or they're crooked or whatever it might be. And these, these myths have no 
you know, no sanitation to, uh, they can't be sanitized. You can't, you can't see the truth. Um, so that it allows the myths to, to pervade. And uh, uh, another, I think that's one yeah. of the, the functions that the book serves. Yeah, another way of putting that, and connects Bob to what you said um, earlier, um, you, you did shine light in, um, uh, in many places, open boxes that hadn't been opened before. Um, the presidency is seen completely different after Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Um, uh, there's kind of pre-Watergate and post-Watergate. And I would say so too with the Supreme Court. There was nothing like the Brethren before there was the Brethren. I think subsequently there have been a few um, books and articles in that tradition. And But unlike uh, um, All the Presidents Men or the Final Days, um, what the Brethren fundamentally uncovered um, was not scandal, not corruption, uh, but it shined light on an institution. There was a human institution that has... Um, you know, it's imperfections, um, uh, nine scorpions in a bottle. Some folks have said sort of, you know, a lot of big personalities um, in a, a, a one um, um, small institution. But I think you're right. It fundamentally, by shining intense light on the, pro, uh, on the institution, legitimated it because basically the justices were imperfect human de- beings trying to do their best. Um, and it wasn't a story of massive scandal and corruption of an epic sort um, of the kind that uh, Woodward and Bernstein exposed in uh, All the President's Men and, and the Final Days. Um, and I'm going to come back to Trump at the very end, but it wasn't that at all. It was a very different story of an institution that, while imperfect, um, uh, 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 it w- was really a bunch of people trying to do their job. And I think yeah. that uh, it, it is a part of something which I'd like to see more of, which is uh, ennobling public service. I mean, I think we get, you know, a lot of rhetoric that, you know, set, puts down Washington and, and so forth as if everybody goes there to uh, accomplish nefarious uh, goals. And, but in fact, these are people that are, you know, doing a hard job, working very hard, and, uh, you know, trying to make the country better. And I think that's true of most public servants. And I think it's true of most reporters. And, and actually, I'm interested in, in segueing into, you know, some of the, uh, you know, sort of the realities of, um, of, of the reporting workplace. I mean, and you're in actually a uh, unique position to talk about it because, of course, you, you're working on your 20th book, but, you know, you've been obviously a, a reporter, but also an editor and management at Akil was telling me that you almost bought the Washington Post at one point. Um, so, so that, uh, you know, no, no, never. Uh, it was the, uh, San Francisco Chronicle. Oh, okay. That, oh, the Chronicle. Okay. okay. Good enough. Okay. And I thought, so, so Jeff Bezos has nothing to worry about. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, but you know, we, I think many of us, so from that point of view, you know, the people tend to think about the press as being in a state of, of flux. Like it's a crisis for print media, people talk about. And there's a transition to, to digital and there's uh, lots of bloggers and, you know, the blogosphere and, the, and, that, and then you have social media. So it appears to be a time of great ferment um, in, among the press. Um, do you agree with that, number one? Um, what do you consider to be... Uh, threatening as opposed to a posit- positive developments 
in this respect? I, I think the press now, uh, basically, uh, my newspaper, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, some of the networks do a very good job. Uh, I think, uh, the, as I was talking about, the impatience and speed of the Internet drives people, and Trump uh, drove a lot of people off the rails, and, uh, you know, I can understand that, but I, I think, that, you know, we need to find some way to slow it down, make it more what's in all the media, more authoritative, and... Uh, that's a that's a big job. It's going to take somebody to step in and uh, really kind of say we're going to we're going to try to objectify uh, what we do. I think cable news adds to the the fire about uh, the partisan divide and so forth. So that's something that people need to. Uh, think about I, I when this journalism class I teach where you two sit in I don't know really do you remember it was a couple of months ago or a month ago one of the students asked this question what does the truth accomplish oh yes I do remember that and I thought wow that you know is is the truth something that sets us back or advances us? Does it come? And I very much think that the tr- what the truth accomplishes is a, a great deal, and it's not always perfect. It's it's you know the brethren is a good example. Coverage of Trump is another very a, a good example of that. But the the more truth the better, and you can't help but see what happens to reporters around the world who wind up dead or in jail. And uh, with all the, uh, I wrote those two books on Trump, which are by far the toughest books on him. The is you the last sentence of. Fear, the first book that came out in 2018 was Trump's lawyer, John Dowd, uh, concluding but not willing to say uh, to uh, Trump directly, you're a fucking liar. <laughs> uh, that is, I mean, for the lawyer to think that and conclude that is pretty amazing. And the, the second book... Uh, which included nine hours and 42 minutes of interviews with Trump himself over six or seven months was one of the most interesting adventures of my reporting life. But my conclusion at the end of that book was uh, simple, he's the wrong man for the job. And as we now examine the Trump presidency more and more uh, business about his handling of the coronavirus, uh, lots of which I have in the book, uh, his handling of the presidency, his handling of his sense of responsibility. Uh, As I once asked him, uh, 
were sitting in the Oval Office for one of these long interviews, and I just asked, uh, what's the job of the president? And he said, oh, to protect the people. I think that's a very good, simplistic, but not inaccurate definition of the job of the president, to protect the people. And when you look at the Trump presidency, this is what he failed at with the virus, that uh, as I document and has been established on January 28th, 19, or I'm sorry, 2020, uh, so that's about 15 months ago, at a top secret briefing, Trump's national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, said to the president, the virus is coming, it is going to be the biggest threat, the biggest national security threat to your presidency. Now, I've never heard of a national security advisor, including Henry Kissinger, saying so bluntly and directly, this is going to be the threat. And then O'Brien and his deputy, Matt Pottinger, laid out that the virus was coming. We now have all these reports that China lied. Well, actually, Pottinger, who'd been a reporter in China for the Wall Street Journal, and, and an excellent one, told the president in that top secret meeting the Chinese lie. We cannot believe them. Uh, Pottinger had contacts with doctors in China who told him that uh, the virus is coming to the United States and it's not going to be like one of these other viruses. It's going to be like the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. It killed 675,000 people. We are fast approaching that number, by the way. The president got the full story, and he failed to protect the people. He could have, a week after that, he gave his State of the Union address to the Congress. 40 million people tuned in on television. And he mentioned the virus and kind of brushed it off. And instead of doing that, suppose he told the American people the truth. And this is the answer to that question of what does the truth accomplish? It can accomplish a great deal. Suppose he'd said in that really important address on February 4th, 2020, said, you know, my national security advisor came in and his deputy, and they're very experienced, and they gave me the kind of warning that a president probably only gets once in a presidency, if ever, that this virus that's in China is coming to the United States, and it's going to be like a pandemic that killed 675,000 people. And he said, he could have said, I mean, because this is all top secret, he can declassify it, and suppose he had said to the public, you know, I don't know that this is true or not, but there are things we can do, and it's going to be inconvenient, the things we could do, but uh, it might make 
a difference, and that is wash your hands. Avoid, you know, always practice social distancing. Wear a mask. Don't crowd in small areas with with groups of people where it's not ventilated. And I, I'm going to ask the American people to do this. It's going to be inconvenient, but this may save us because I've been told this is a pandemic like the one a century earlier that killed 675,000 people. Trump would have been ridiculed by some people. He would have been hailed as a hero by the experts and by the public. And reality, he probably would be president again. And uh, this is what this goes to. Presidents have to convert the information they have to useful information to the people who they are supposed to protect. And if you go back to Gerald Ford, uh, Ford wasn't protecting the people in a way that was measurable at that point or in the years after. But think about it. In history, by pardoning Richard Nixon, moving Nixon off the front page, doing what was in the national interest, allowing us to have a hit, because uh, I left a piece out here, part of what Ford did is he negotiated to get the Nixon tapes back. Nixon had taken all of his tapes to California. And part of the deal for the pardon was all the tapes come back to Washington. That is Nixon's legacy. That is the truth accomplishing telling us what happened in the Nixon presidency. And Nixon will never get out of what's on those tapes because it is uh, indifference, it is crime, it is corruption, it is a, uh, I've listened to lots of those tapes and I tell you it's a story. So here we have presidents in this wonderful, powerful position and there are always different ways to protect the country. And uh, last point, FDR, after Pearl Harbor, go l listen to his fireside chat. Does he come in and say, oh, this is nothing, problem, just a little bombing? He said, no, we are in danger. In fact, we may not survive that we have a, this has been an attack that is more than a setback, and we are going to have to spend uh, immense energy. People in factories are going to have to work round the clock. Uh, and then he said, and this is the greatness in FDR, he said, you know what? 
I know the American public. You will rise to that occasion. We will do our job together. And, of course, the story of World War II is the execution of that vision, which is connected to this idea of the truth accomplishing so much. That's an amazing coda um, um, uh, for uh, uh, our conversation. Just the very last question uh, is, do you want to tell us anything at all about uh, Trump book number three? Because I know you're hard at work at that, um, any, and with Bob Costa, I think, but anything you want to yeah. tell our audience? Uh, no, I, I mean, we're in, in midstream on this. Bob Costa, colleague at The Post, uh, young, great reporter. I mean, he makes me feel and act lazy. Frankly, he's, uh, he's such, uh, it is an amazing, uh, reporting machine and genius. And, you know, we're working on the end of Trump and the beginning of Biden. And so I, you know, I, we haven't reached at the end of the road, uh, to, see what we are going to be able to deliver in the book. Oh, without, uh, without playing Bob Woodward and pressing you for more and more details that you don't want to give us quite yet, um, it does sound to me like there's a question that you've brought up a couple of times that uh, the book may wind up addressing because you talk, we're talking about Ford and how he's trying to put Nixon behind us while Biden has a, a comparable challenge. You know, a president that was just impeached um, a, you know, a, a divided country. Um, you know, Trump has a has a, a habit of sort of hanging over everything. And, uh, you know, the, one of Biden's challenges is how to move the country past past Trump. And, uh, you know, so that's, uh, I look forward to reading about that should you choose to address it. Stay tuned. <laughs> and, and Bob, um, the uh, final thing, um, uh, Andy and his family just uh, celebrated uh, Passover over the last few days, and, and they always say, these uh, satyrs, uh, next year in Jerusalem, next year the three of us should get together and do a, um, uh, an, a podcast. We've talked about FDR and all the, the modern presidents. I know you come from Illinois, land of Lincoln. I know you've actually talked about Lincoln, Andy and I, our Lincoln fanatics. So next year, let's do this again and uh, love to hear your thoughts in particular about um, Lincoln's Thanks. presidency. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Peace. I know. Bye. So you see the many sides and skills of Bob Woodward, including the ability to avoid talking about his next book until he's ready. But whenever it arrives, we will all be ready. Akil and I are so grateful to him for this amazing hour. And thanks, too, to Everscholar for making this possible. Check out the Everscholar programs at everscholar.org. And we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.